Well, we are here at uh, Lesson 13 today, and we want to finish uh, Chapter 9 uh, today, and then uh, we have to kind of break off. <clears throat> 8, 9, and 10 are a section, but uh, we can, I think, figure our way through that. Uh, 8 and 9, 8, go, eight kind of goes together, 9, and then 10 will kind of tie it all together. And then we'll move on. So we'll uh, be back here after the two-week break. Uh, next two weeks, we'll just have one service in the auditorium. Let's begin then with a word of prayer. Father, grant to us today uh, understanding of your word. And give us a desire to follow you, to be obedient to you, to be t- teachable, to be taught by you. Give us the right kind of disposition and love and concern for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, help us, Father, to have the attitude we see in the Apostle Paul of uh, concern for the gospel and be willing to uh, mold our lives, dedicate ourselves to a greater purpose uh, while we're here in this place and this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and the first thing we have to do is do our quiz. Number one, Paul's primary purpose in 1 Corinthians 9 is to defend his apostleship. I didn't say that, so no, it's not his primary purpose, he doesn't really defend so much. He starts off by saying, am I not an apostle? But he doesn't really defend that. He just kind of assumes, hey, listen, I'm an apostle, and therefore you you accept that, and I have these rights as an apostle. So he doesn't exactly, it's not exactly a defense of that. It sort of assumes it. Those who minister gospel have a right to be supported by those they minister to. True, Paul says that's true. Um, Verse uh, number three, Paul did not demand his right to material support because he wanted his ministry to illustrate the freeness of the gospel. True. True. He could have uh, demanded the right because Jesus said those who, Paul quotes and says, he's quoting Jesus, and he says those who, what does he say? Labors worthy of their hire. Yeah, those who, the flavor is worthy of hire, but Paul says uh, you know, those who preach the gospel should be supported by the gospel, as we'll see here. I'm thinking the King James Version. Um, those who preach the gospel or those who should live of the gospel. Um, that text, I'll come to that in a moment here. Paul characterizes his apostolic ministry as a voluntary one. No, he doesn't. That's what's confusing there. That's what's a little confusing. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. When you read that, you say, okay, that's what he's doing. No, Paul says, no. I'm not exactly a volunteer. I'm not the volunteer. I'm a steward. I have been compelled. God laid this on me. I just didn't volunteer for this. It's not that Paul uh, was reluctant in that sense, but he doesn't classify himself as a pure volunteer. He says, the God of the universe said do this. 
if God tells us to do something, you know, we must do it. We don't. He's God. We're not. And so Paul says, God called me and said, you're going to be my apostle to Gentiles, and that's your stewardship. You must fulfill this stewardship. All right. So we're looking at uh, chapter 9, and we have looked at... Um, this is under the section food sacrifice to idols. Remember the problem, of course, is that the Corinthians are going to these idol temples for meals, for religious purposes, for celebrations of various kinds. Paul doesn't want them to go there any longer because of the idolatry involved. You can't really go there and just go there to meet with friends and all this kind of stuff just as a get-together because there's always going to be idolatry involved. And uh, But some in Corinth are saying, remember, oh, Paul, there's nothing wrong with going there because these are just wooden gods. They're just stone. They're, they're not real gods. They don't really exist. So when I go to the temple, I don't think I'm worshiping a god or anything. And Paul says, yes, but let's look at it this way. Look at the example you're setting and how you're affecting your brothers. There are some who will see you eating in this idol temple. They'll be tempted to do that, and they may go back into idolatry again. They're weak. They're, they have a weak conscience. They haven't assimilated all this. They, don't, they haven't grasped all this. They've grown up in an idol culture, and they haven't grasped what you're saying there about the idols are nothing. So you don't want to mess around with that. Now in chapter 10, as we'll see, he'll totally forbid it. But for right now, he's interested in the conduct of the Corinthians and how that affects uh, their fellow Christians. So in chapter 9, Paul uses his own example here to try to illustrate a person who has the right to do certain things, legitimate rights, but he's willing to give up those rights for a greater cause. And that cause, of course, is the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. So we're kind of in the middle of our section here. We're looking now at Paul's apostolic freedom. I say here, Paul asks two questions in 9-1. Am I not free? And am I not an apostle? The second question was dealt with in 114. That was where Paul said, yes, I am an apostle, and here's the rights I have as an apostle. And he enumerates those rights. Remember, I have the right to be supported. I have the right to bring a wife along, as the other apostles do. I have all these. He, he enumerates all these rights. Um, the second, so the, so the second, that was dealt in 1 through 14. Particularly his right to be supported. Paul uh, started answering the first question, am I not free, in verse 15. The second question is, am I not free? He starts to answer that in verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. However, not too many words there, don't I? However, he got sidetracked because of his concerns, concern that some might think his long argument about his right to support to support might sound like a disguised solicitation for it. And I am not writing this, he says, in the hope that you will do so, such things for me. So Paul is, a, Paul is saying in those verses, I have the right, I have the right to be supported and all that, but I'm not, I'm not saying all these things 
hoping that you will start supporting me. I'm saying all these things to say, even though I have this right, I have the freedom to give those things up for the greater cause of the gospel. Now in verse 19, Paul returns to the theme of freedom and expounds upon it. Paul is free from external obligations that might impinge upon how he conducts his ministry, yet he voluntarily catered to the personal, cultural, and religious concerns of the people he was evangelizing in order to win them to Christ. So, verse uh, 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I say Paul now says that although he is free and belongs to no one, he has used his freedom to become a slave to everyone. So because he is a slave to Christ or steward serving Christ, Paul says I have to work without pay uh, because I'm carrying out the duties of a steward. Remember 917 again, if I preach voluntarily I have a reward if if not, voluntarily, that's him. I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me, Paul says. I'm just carrying out this trust committed to me. But the fact that he's working without pay, the fact that he's not taking any money from the Corinthians, means they don't have any entanglements they can put upon him. You know, he's he's kind of free from any restraints on his ministry. So he can be free to become anybody's slave he wants to. He's Christ's slave, and so he can he can place himself under anybody he wants to. He, he's not beholden to human beings. I say here, however, freedom is not Paul's goal. Rather, it's the salvation of others. So he says, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So since he's independent of the Corinthians and others, no strings attached, He's able to put himself at the disposal of others for the sake of the gospel. A slave, he says, to everyone. It's, some people think here that you know Paul has maybe thinking of the example of Jesus himself, who, though he was free, he put himself in a position of servanthood to serve others, to go to the cross and things like that. And that's really Christ. So Paul is exhibiting sort of Christ-like behavior here. I say in this context, Paul becoming a slave of all is to be understood in light of the examples that follow, which we will see is referring to his willingness to accommodate himself to whatever social setting he found himself in so as to win as many as possible. So what we're going to see is Paul accommodates his style of living. He accommodates his style of living. He does not accommodate his theological or ethical principles. He accommodates his style of living to whomever he was with so to improve his chances of winning that person to Christ. So Paul was flexible in matters not of doctrine, not of ethics, not of theology, but he was flexible in matters of of general lifestyle and matters of food. You know, he could eat that ham sandwich or not eat that ham sandwich. Didn't make any difference to him. Matters of clothing. Things like that that weren't essential to the gospel. You've probably heard of the famous missionary Christian uh, Hudson Taylor, who you know lived from about 1832 to 1905. 
went to China, founded the China Inland Mission, so forth. But um, when he went there, you know, the theory was, and this was this was a problem of all missionaries of that time. They went to native peoples, but they kept themselves separate from native peoples. So when Taylor went to China, he decided he would adopt Chinese dress, and he wore his his hair in a ponytail, just like Chinese men did, you know. Well, he was widely criticized by other uh, British missionaries for what he did, but he was simply trying to knock down any barriers. He wanted to adapt to the culture uh, so people would accept him and hear his message. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Paul now proceeds to explain what he meant in verse 19 by the words, made himself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He does so by specifying some of the kinds of social settings in which he practiced evangelism. So Paul is reflecting here on his differing conduct in Jewish and Gentile settings. And in those settings, the central issue, of course, is the Mosaic law, the Jewish law. So to put it in contemporary terms, you know, when he was with the Jews, he observed the Jewish food laws, what Jews call kosher, being kosher today. Kosher means proper or fitting. So Orthodox Jews will only eat food that is kosher, that has been properly prepared and so forth, according to Jewish laws and so on. So when Paul was among the Jews, he was kosher. When he was Gentiles, he was non-kosher. He didn't care about those food laws or anything like that. He didn't try to observe them. Because, just as we saw with circumcision, neither mattered to God. In this church dispensation, it doesn't matter. Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Food laws don't apply here. Paul's concern, I say, was to win Jews as well as all others. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. This first item probably gives us a clue to understanding the others. We have to wonder, how can a Jew become like a Jew? So the obvious answer here seems to be in matters that have to do with Jewish religious peculiarities that Paul as a Christian had long given up as a Christian. Uh, 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 these Jewish uh, food laws and other legal things in the law that Paul had given up um, as essential to a right relationship to God. These would include, of course, circumcision. Remember he says, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing in this dispensation. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything in this dispensation. Not meant a lot if you were if you were living at the time of Moses. If you lived uh, before the coming of Christ, it meant everything. Uh, so circumcision, but food does not bring us near to God. We're not better. We're not worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So it's food. The food laws are no longer valid in this dispensation. So. Um, Paul says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. 
with regard to a religious festival. All those festivals in Leviticus 23, the Passover. You know, we have a lot of strange Christians around who <coughs> want to still observe the Passover. You know, and observe Pentecost and all that nonsense. It's just, it's just those things are. That's that's covered here. We're not under these festivals anymore. That's for the Jews. It's not for us. The new moons, celebration of the Sabbath day. We're not under the Sabbath. We're meeting on Sunday. This is not the Sabbath. Yesterday was the Sabbath. And if, if you're thinking about the Sabbath, you missed it. That was Saturday. That was yesterday. So uh, all these kinds of things, special observances and so forth. So on these questions, Paul says he is free. And he's opposed to anyone who would impose them upon Gentile converts. So you remember he opposed the circumcision of Titus because he's a Gentile. Because if you impose that on a Gentile, you're suggesting to be right with God, you must be circumcised. Now he had no problem with Jews continuing with their traditions as long as they didn't think of those things as giving them the right standing with God. You can, you can continue to uh, not eat pork, ham, uh, ham sandwiches if you want to, but don't think that it gives you some special standing with God. Um, so Paul is not trying to do uh, separate the Jews from their tr- tradition, from their religion, from their cultural expressions of who they are as Jews, But he has to deliver them from the idea that the law was a way of salvation. So Paul is saying here he was willing to yield to Jewish customs for the sake of the Jews, to evangelize the Jews. Remember he had Timothy circumcised. Because Timothy was technically a Jew, his mother was Jewish and so forth. He didn't do it because Timothy needed circumcision to be saved, but he wanted... Timothy to be effective in his evangelization so he could go into Jewish context as a Jew, as Paul did. The second item, to those under the law, may be a reference to God-fearers and proselytes. Remember, there's distinction here. Gentiles like Lydia, we see in Acts 16, and others who would go to the synagogues, uh, who believed in the God of Israel, uh, uh, you know, there were people like that, Cornelius and so forth. Then there were people who converted fully to Judaism. That meant circumcision. That meant being instructed by a rabbi. It meant a lot of different steps you had to walk through to be a full proselyte. But he may have reference here to God-fearers, proselytes, with the parathetical addition, though I myself am not under the law, Paul makes it clear that a New Testament believer was not under the authority of the Mosaic Law. He did, however, at certain times voluntarily comply with some Mosaic regulations in order to more effectively evangelize those who still believe the law was binding upon them. So Paul sometimes freely placed himself under the law for the sake of others, though he was not obligated to do so. So the difference between Paul and some of his <coughs> Jewish friends may look the same on the outside to an, to an outsider. They may say they're both observant Jews, but that's not the case. 
Paul had a different purpose in mind when he was observing these Jewish laws. Some people abstain from these food, from the food, because they want to be right with God. Paul abstains sometimes in Jewish context because he wants to win the Jews. So there's a, a tremendous difference. And so, uh, you know, this is a very important text here um, when Paul says, though I myself am not under the law. There it is. Christians are not under the law. Um, so that's why I'm a dispensationalist. That's why Pastor Ken calls himself a dispensationalist. Now, what does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is there's the distinction between Israel and the church. And that those Old Testament laws were meant for the nation of Israel. They were religious and ceremonial and civil laws. And when the church comes along, that's those are not for us. Those are not, well, I'm going to explain our relationship in just a moment. But in this dispensation, the way God is working now through the church... We're not observing those. We're not the nation of Israel. Verse 21, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. The third item in the series, those not having the law, corresponds to the second, those under the law, as its opposite. Paul is here referring to his conduct among the Gentiles, including the majority of the Corinthian believers. As in the previous verse, Paul adds a parenthetical qualifier. I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So among Gentiles, he behaves as one who is not under the Jewish law. He eats those ham sandwiches, loves them, matter of fact. But, he does not believe that he's free from God's law altogether. In Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul argues that when the Gentiles do not have the law, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They don't have the Mosaic law in a written form. They don't have the Old Testament. So the Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic Law, don't have the written book, don't have the Torah, when they do by nature the things required by the law, they, sh they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart. There's a kind of a law, a moral law, in the hearts of all people. Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times defending them. Because we are in the image of God, I say we have the moral law of God written on our hearts. This can be demonstrated by the fact that we have that we uh, have a conscience. Should be. We have a conscience which debates right and wrong. The moral law of God causes us sometimes to do by nature the things required by the law, things like refraining from murder and theft. Paul sees Gentiles being responsible for those moral standards that God has placed upon them. In this sense, Gentiles are under law, not the law of Moses exactly, but under law nevertheless. Thus, all people possess God's moral law since it is written on their hearts. The moral law of God is eternal. 
It was reflected in the Mosaic Law. Though the Mosaic Law is much broader, including civil and ceremonial laws, binding only on the nation of Israel. The Mosaic Law is an indivisible unit that reached its culmination in Christ and has been abrogated. Christ is the end of the law, Paul says. The Mosaic Law as a code or contractual obligation is not directly applicable to New Testament believers. It is, according to Moo, no longer a direct and immediate source of or judge of the conduct of God's people. Another writer, Dorsey, explains, according to the Old Testament writers, this treaty was violated and in fact repudiated by that nation. Now we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, the fact that God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. He established the Mosaic Covenant. Jeremiah says, they have returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. They have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. So the prophets are complaining about how the Jews have not kept the Mosaic Covenant. They've broken it. I will. I, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Jeremiah then starts talking about a new covenant that God's going to have. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So Dorsey says they violated, they repudiated that covenant, and according to the New Testament writers, God has consequently abrogated the treaty and established a new, not a renewed treaty, with a reconstituted covenant people. So now we have a new covenant. Paul will say later in chapter 11, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. So Paul says, I'm a minister of the new covenant, not the old covenant. That covenant's been abrogated. When a new treaty or contract replaces an older one, as in modern labor contracts, Dorsey says, the terms of the older contract are normally non-binding upon the parties. Granted, parties might be interested in the terms of a formal contract, a former contract for various reasons, but as far as legal applicability is concerned, it is the terms of the new contract, not the old, that are binding. So what I'm saying here is there's an eternal moral law of God based on God's character. It's always been wrong to murder. It's always been wrong to steal. It's always been wrong to lie. That was true in the Garden of Eden. Now that was eventually incorporated into the Mosaic legal system as part of the Mosaic law, see the Ten Commandments. But that law is much broader. And even though the law has been set aside, the eternal moral law of God continues. And that moral law is written on our hearts, actually, when we're born. We we, we know right from wrong. We immediately start making excuses and lying and defending ourselves and making up things when we do wrong, because we know we do wrong. (coughs) And so it's it's, it's sort of like a labor contract where the point is, even though we're not under that old contract, this new contract we still continue that eternal moral law of God. 
when I used to work in a shipyard many years ago, we had a union called the Peninsula Shipbuilders Association, <clears throat> the local union. And I remember when we'd get a new contract, we would get this little book. It was just a small book I could put in my hand. I remember it was a kind of a green book, you know. And it had, a, you know, it had 40 pages or so. I guess things were simpler then. I don't know. <laughs> but it had in there the rates. You know, it had, okay, if you're this, if you're a mechanic or if you're a designer, here's what you make or what's that one. So it had the rates of pay. And if you've been here three years, you get this much vacation. Five years, you get here 10 years. You get 20 years, you get this vacation. And on the front of it, it had the year, the contract, 19, whatever it was. And I can remember a discussion about this coming up because uh, that we had, there was a debate and where I was working about something in the contract. And somebody pulls out this book, and they're talking about some something about the contract, how much vacation after five years. And this guy pulls out this book, and he says, well, right there it is in the contract. And the other guy says, no, that's, that's not valid anymore. That's the old contract. But the point is, the guy pulls out the new book. Well, I, I know it's – what difference does it make? It's the same thing. They didn't change – with a new contract, it's still the same amount of vacation. You see what I'm saying? That is, the, the old just carried over to the new. But that old is technically not valid. You can't go to that old contract and say, hey, listen, boss, this contract says after three years, you know, I get two weeks vacation. You can't use that. You've got to go to the new contract, even though it says the same thing. So there's a carryover here. The eternal moral law of God continues right through all these dispensations. But the Mosaic Law, that whole thing, was abrogated, and we can't appeal to that directly anymore. We can appeal to it since it shows the eternal moral law of God, but not directly in that sense. On the other hand, the moral truth or precepts that flow from the character of God don't change, cannot change. This eternal moral law has always been and always will be binding on human creatures. For example, murder was wrong before the law. During the period of the law, it's wrong in the New Testament. Age will be wrong in the kingdom. For Israel, the moral law became part of a larger Mogul's legal system, Mosaic Law, which included civil ceremonial demands along with precise penalties that were culturally specific to a particular people living in a particular location at a particular time. So Israel had a law that said, <clears throat> because they often had flat roofs and they often would go on top of that roof because it would be hot during the day, you'd go up on the roof and maybe get out of the heat of the house. Israel had a law that you had to have a fence, a parapet, built around your... It was illegal not to have that around your uh, roof. That's not binding upon us today. <laughs> yeah, it is. If you have a deck up on top, you will have a 42-inch <laughs> But But if you go appeal to that place in the Bible... Well, it's, it's called something different today. It's that's right. That, that's the whole point. So the principle, the principle, which was the safety of people who were on your roof, that principle is a good principle, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it carries through because local governments establish laws like that, don't they? And say, you've got to build that parapet. But you can't appeal to that law, can you? You can't. No. Not, not directly. That's my point. Exactly. Verse 22. Uh, I'm sorry. The next prayer. What is binding upon Paul and us is Christ's law. Christ's law obviously includes God's eternal moral, as well as the teaching and example of moral a law, as well as the teaching and example of Jesus and the apostles found in the New Testament. 
Verse 22, I, we kind of missed that, but he says, I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. Well, what is that Christ's law? Well, that's obviously God's eternal moral law, which we can find in the Old Testament. We find in the, the New Testament what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught, and so forth. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul now mentions another sociological category of people, the weak. This would be similar to those mentioned in 126 and 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called to salvation. He's talking to all the Corinthian church. Now, many of you were not wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. Now, he uses things, but remember he's talking about people there, you, to shame the wise. God chose the weak. The weak, according to this passage, includes the majority of the Corinthians themselves. The concluding sentence, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some, summarizes and generalizes the argument. Here is how the principle of servitude, that is, the principle of the cross, operates in Paul's life. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. He's not going to compromise on matters of the gospel itself. He's not compromising the gospel, the truth of the gospel. But he's willing to become all things to all people in matters that don't count. The things that aren't essential. Verse 23. I can do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul concludes his argument with the final clear statement of his primary motivation in life, all things for the sake of the gospel. <clears throat> Paul means for the sake of the progress of the gospel. The final clause that I may share in its blessings is referring to Paul's sharing with the Corinthians in its benefits, the benefits of the gospel. Thus, Paul is anticipating his discussion in, nine, in verses 24 through 27 to follow. So Paul is placing himself alongside those to whom he preaches and to whom he writes. Along with the Corinthians, Paul says, I want to share ultimately in the blessings of the gospel. But he says there is no absolute guarantee about that. Because, he says, I must persevere in the gospel if I'm going to share in its promises. I must persevere. So we'll, let me talk, we'll talk about perseverance in just a moment here. So Paul is concerned that the Corinthians who are going to these pagan cultic temples are acting in such a way, are, are being so disobedient that it puts their whole Christian profession in jeopardy, raises questions about their perseverance. I'd like to just say one final thing, and I've hinted on this, but you know, sometimes this passage is used by some to talk about accommodation in evangelism. That is, they'll talk about adapting the message, adapting the truth to try to win people. But this, this passage doesn't provide any basis for adapting the message, adapting the truth for that strategy. We're talking about how one lives 
how one behaves among those you're trying to evangelize. And generally, you're always trying to fit into the social situation, as long as it's not an immoral social situation. You're trying to fit into the customs and the situation of the people with whom you're trying to evangelize. Paul was interested in knocking down barriers that would prevent people from hearing the gospel. Well, let's look at this next section. Exhortation and example, 924 through 27. This section forms a transitional transition by bringing chapter 9 to its conclusion and at the same time preparing for a return to the argument against going to the cultic meals in chapter 10, 1 through 22. This section consists of illustrations from the nearby Greek games. The most well-known were the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games took place every four years in ancient Greece. But Corinth had their own games in nearby Isthmia. Remember, we looked at a map some time ago, but Isthmia is a suburb of Corinth here. Corinth is the main, Isthmia is a suburb. And there were games there that were held every two years. So they were held the year before the Olympic Games and the year after the Olympic Games, every two years. They were thought to be the second most important games in all of Greece. So the the Isthmian Games were held under the patronage of Corinth. They controlled these games. You know, as a side note, we'd mentioned this before, but there weren't any permanent facilities at these games to stay in. There weren't any holiday inns. There weren't any kind of motels. That was true at the Olympic Games. If you went to Olympia in Greece. So people stayed in tents. And um, many people like to speculate. Paul was a tent maker, remember? Priscilla and Quilla were there. And he was there in AD 51. Paul was there in 51 when the uh, Isthmian Games were there. So he would have certainly, if he didn't see them, he was very familiar with those games in AD 51. They, these games had certain basic events. Uh, racing, there were racing, various races, wrestling, jumping, boxing, hurling the javelin, and throwing the discus. I'll say here, the primary point of Paul's illustrations from the games is the imperative of verse 24b. Run in such a way as to get the prize. This idea controls the entire section. Paul is urging the Corinthians to run the Christian life while exercising proper self-control so as to win the eschatological, remember the future, reward. Paul commonly speaks of our salvation as a future reward. Remember we talked about this before. How that when we talk about being saved, we said, I've been saved, I am saved, are you saved? We talk about it as a past event. But Paul, uh, 12 times in his epistles, he talks about it as something future. You know, verses like, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So it's true, we've been justified, and we're being sanctified, but we're waiting for glorification. So we haven't been fully saved yet. For everyone who calls on the Lord, the Lord will ultimately be saved. So, those whose lives are characterized by sin are not exercising proper self-control. That's the problem. 
The Corinthians are not exercising self-control by going to these pagan temples. They're not persevering, it looks like. This passage is an important one dealing with the doctrine of perseverance, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. Grudem in his book says, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will, be, and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And, though, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints emphasizes both the preservation, both God's preservation and the believer's need to persevere, that is to continue in their Christian faith. So we commonly talk about eternal security. That's part of it. God keeps us secure, but part of his keeping means that he is going to keep us believing. 1 Peter 1.5 Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. The believer is kept by God. He's eternally secure. But that keeping includes the continuing faith of the believer. He's not kept irrespective of his faith. If one does not continue in faith, that is proof that he's not being kept by God. <clears throat> A genuine believer will never voluntarily deny Christ. Now I'm talking about Ultimately, not. We know guys like Peter. So I don't know this guy, you know. I'm not talking about a, a carnality, an instance of sin or something like that, as we'll see. But we're talking about absolutely denial of Christ. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This verse is saying that if we continue to believe as we did at the beginning of our salvation experience then this is proof that we have come to share in Christ. That is, we are generally saved. Those who permanently give up their profession of faith prove that they were never true believers to begin with. In Colossians 1, 22 through 23, Paul says, but now he has reconciled you if you continue in your faith. He's reconciled you if you continue in your faith. A true believer will also persevere or continue in good works. Good works have no part in saving us, but they are the inevitable result of salvation. Paul says we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Although the New Testament epistles were written primarily to Christians, they are filled with warnings about the consequences of not continuing good works. Paul told the Galatians, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. I'll warn you, Galatians as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why write this to Christians? Because the Galatians, like all the rest of us, are professors of faith in Christ. The late R.C. Sproul said, nobody was ever saved by a profession of faith. You have to possess faith. And the real proof of the genuineness of one's faith is perseverance in good works. As James says, faith without works is dead. Christians who are living a sinful pattern of life have no right to feel secure about their salvation. This is not to say, however, that a true believer may not fall into sin and carnality. This can happen to any of us. However, a genuine believer will not remain in that condition forever. A true believer will repent of sin and begin again to produce spiritual fruit. In other words, one cannot simply make a profession of faith in Christ, never produce any fruit or good works in this life, and have confidence 
that they'll go to heaven. In this context, the area where the Corinthians lack self-control is in the area of insisting on their right of going to the temples and engaging in idolatrous eating in the pagan temples. So Paul's purpose in this section is to exhort them to proper conduct. But the passage also serves as a warning if they fail to run properly. And as a warning, it's going to anticipate chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, where Paul says, this is very serious. You're engaged in worship of demons. Verse 24. Now, uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Do you not know indicates that Paul is continuing his preceding argument in this case by offering an illustration that will bring Paul's main concerns going back to 8, 7 through 13 into focus. The illustration is taken from the runners in the various Greek games, and as we noted, the Corinthians would be well acquainted with Paul's illustration given their own Isthmian games. In these ancient games, there was only one prize per race. There's no gold, silver, bronze. There's just one prize per race. The victor's crown, which was given to the winner. Now, Paul's point in this illustration is not that Christians are in a competition with each other. We're not in a competition with each other. But that in living the Christian life, as in the games, so we're all in the race, we're all in the Christian life race, and in that race, just like in the runner who's running, we have to exercise self-control. The runner has to exercise self-control. We have to uh, uh, exercise self-control to win the prize. The runner must run in a way, Paul says, as to get the prize. That's the exhortation. That's the point of the entire paragraph here. Verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The phrase goes into strict training is actually one word in the original that has the idea of self-control. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, where we saw it. But if they cannot control themselves, they can't discipline themselves, they should marry. In the games, winning requires self-control, self-discipline, even for the best athletes. An athlete entering in the games was required to go into 10 months of strict training and was subject to disqualification if he failed to do so. So Paul is thinking about the training leading up to the race itself. It was required that you go into this strict training regimen for 10 months. And if you didn't follow it exactly, you would be disqualified. So Paul says that in the Christian life, self-control is essential in order to win the prize. In the case of the Corinthians, Paul is concerned that their insistence on the right to eat the cultic meals in the pagan temples may indicate a lack of self-control, a lack of perseverance. Therefore, they may be in danger of not winning the prize. So for the Corinthians, to exercise self-control will mean not simply foregoing some rights for the sake of others, but also foregoing, for, foregoing giving up some things altogether because they're inherently incompatible with the Christian life. And that's what he's going to say in chapter 10. It's bad enough that you're unwilling to give up these going to the temple because of how it affects these other Christians. But what's even more important when we get to chapter 10 is 
This is really incompatible with the Christian life because going to the temple is idolatry. You're worshiping idols. And demons are behind idols. You're worshiping demons. The Corinthians should be willing to exercise self-control. The self-control Paul is calling for when one considers the prize, a crown that will last forever. So Paul is saying the athlete goes into strict training, discipline, to receive the victor's crown, a perishable crown. The victor crown, the victor's crown um, in Paul's day at the Isthmian Games was a crown made of celery. And when you got this crown, it was already withering. And this kind of was to show you this glory is fainting, is fading, you know. It, it don't, don't get the big head here because you're getting the celery crown. You're, you're the victor for the moment. But it's a crown that's perishing. It's a crown that will fade away. It won't last. That's what Paul is illustrating here. But Paul says we get a crown that will last forever. So the illustration is designed here to impress upon them that their goal, being eternal in nature, should uh, affect them in such a way as they live in the present. And we might think about uh, James 1.12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 26. Therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Paul now draws a conclusion from the previous illustration that applies and applies it to his own life. Paul views himself as a runner in the race, and he wants the Corinthians to follow his example. Now, he's going to say that when he gets find 11.1, the end of this section. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's going to be his concluding thing there at the very end. But Paul does not run like someone running aimlessly, which means running with no fixed goal. Paul's intent is to win the prize. And people who enter a race enter because they have a goal in mind. And so does Paul. And Paul's conduct, Paul's giving up his rights, which is described in the previous section, his giving up his rights for the sake of the Gospels with the ultimate purpose is so that he will share in its blessings. Paul's conduct, his life, is a demonstration of his own good works, of his own perseverance in good works and faith. Paul adds a second illustration from the games that is designed to make the same point. He's, he's not like a boxer who's just beating the air. This last phrase may refer to a boxer who fails to land effective blows while in the ring or of this exercise the shadow boxer prior to the fight. In either case, the illustration is the same. The illustration is the same illustration as the runner. Paul runs or fights with a clear objective. He's running, he's fighting to win the prize. Verse 27, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The no indicates that Paul is contrasting the foolish boxer who would merely beat the air and not hit his opponent with his own conduct as one who boxes with real purpose. 
Paul's goal is to win the prize of a crown that will last forever. And to do so, he must, be argued in verse 25, exercise self-control. Paul makes the same point by continuing the boxing illustration he introduced in verse 26. Paul, the whole person, must exercise self-control. But because of the boxing metaphor, the object of the blows becomes Paul's body, which he adds is made his slave in order to serve the purpose of in the gospel. Again, we must not think that Paul is speaking of beating or subduing his physical body because it's sinful. Sin does not lie in our bodies, but in our immaterial aspect. In order to persevere, we must, as Paul says elsewhere, do as Paul says elsewhere, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. As I note, you will live. As I noted, by body, Paul intends myself as in verse 19, which would include the body, but as it, but only as it's the vehicle of his present earthly life. Paul's point is that the need of self-restraint, which means that in his own case, striking a blow to the body probably refers to the hardships which he voluntarily subjected himself in preaching to the Corinthians, which included working with his own hands, in which he turned meant suffering the hardships mentioned. So Paul treated, he, he had a difficult life. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard. We're cursed. We're blessed. When we bless, we, we're persecuted. When we endure it and so forth. You know, we read this. So the point here is that Paul, using that illustration the boxer, says... I have to watch out for myself. I have to discipline myself as the runner, as the boxer. I have to bring myself under control. The final purpose clause, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize, expresses Paul's real intent. With the previous illustrations, Paul is telling the Corinthians that he exercises self-control in all things so that after he has fulfilled his task laid on him by divine necessity, he himself will not come short of the prize. Failing to win the prize is expressed with a final <coughs> athletic, athletic metaphor, disqualified for the prize. And so that's been the point from the beginning of the illustration, that he wants the Corinthians to exercise self-control lest they fail to obtain the eschatological prize. The eschatological prize here is the crown of life, eternal life, that Paul is talking about. This word disqualified here is always used in the sense of, in the sense of disqualified in a salvation kind of sense here. And Paul is saying it's possible that people can make a profession of faith, but their conduct is such that it casts questions about that. Remember, Paul has doubts about the Corinthians. He's expressed them throughout. He says even in chapter, he'll say later in chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? That word, fail the test, that phrase, fail the test, is the same, is one Greek word, the same word that's translated disqualified here, adakamas. Paul says, examine yourself, Corinthians. I'm concerned about you. Your conduct is so carnal and so fleshly sometimes that I wonder if you've really been regenerated, if you really have true faith. So realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. So examine yourself, Paul says. 
All right, we've come to the end of our section here, and uh, I guess it's good for all of us to think about our own situation and always our own conduct and our own lives. It's a good reminder for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to take to heed the words of the Apostle Paul. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.